Well, if you can open your Bibles to Galatians 4, chapter 4, 21 uh, through chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 4, 21 uh, to chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 is a transition verse, so I'll, I'll look at it today, and we'll, we'll look at it the next time we meet uh, in Galatians. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the servant woman and one by the free woman. But the son by the servant woman had been born according to the flesh, while the son by the free woman through the promise... This is spoken with allegory, for these women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children into slavery. She is Hagar. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is her mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not give birth. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate one than of the one who has a husband. And you, brothers, in accordance with Isaac, are children of promise, but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh was persecuting him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the servant woman and her son, for the son of the servant woman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of a servant woman, but of the free woman. Learning a new language has has never been easy for me. The first subject in high school that I really struggled with was French. After about a a week or two of French class, I was was so clueless, and my first quiz was so bad, I, I, I desperately switched to Spanish a couple of weeks later where I didn't do very much better. Um, Even in Spanish, I can remember uh, giving my uh, presentation in Spanish to the class about Fidel Castro, and when I sat down, my teacher looked at me and said to me, uh, I had a Spanish name, Angel, I'll never forget the word, she said, Angel, Angel, that was the worst Spanish accent I've ever heard in my life. Years later, when my wife and I visited Paris years ago, uh, I tried a second attempt at the language, and again, my accent was so bad during my time there, I'm sure half of Paris couldn't wait for me to leave the country. It's not only the accent of foreign languages that makes learning a language difficult to learn. It's not just all the new vocabulary words you have to, to pick up. What's particularly hard is the grammar. For, for example, in English, the order of, of a sentence is usually uh, the subject, verb, object, I threw the ball, uh, but in Korean, the, the order of a sentence is subject, object, verb. I, I, I the ball threw. I, the house, went to. Did you know that the gospel has its own particular grammar as well? And, and the grammar of the, the gospel is, is drastically different uh, from the grammar of the world, as you might have guessed. But even after we become believers, becoming fluent in this new uh, gospel grammar of living takes a lifetime to master, just like somebody from another country will, will struggle for a long time putting the right English words in the right order. Specifically, the gospel has its own mood, 
that is, di that is different than the world's mood. Just like we have moods, uh, verbs also have moods. But when we're talking about a grammatical mood, uh, a mood is a variation of a, a mode of how a verb works. When it comes to living out the gospel, the two important moods are, number one, the indicative mood, where the verb expresses a fact, and number two, the imperative mood, where the verb issues a command. Before God saved you, the grammar of how our lives work came in the order of imperative first, which led to the indicative second. We instinctually followed the imperative to do our best, which we thought would lead to the indicative of if we do our best, then God will save us. That was the grammar of the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. The imperative came first, obey the law that leads to the indicative second, and God will save you. So Paul, in response in Galatian, uh, corrects this grammar of the gospel that the Galatians had, had mangled and, and the, the, where, the, where the Galatians had confounded the order. So in this letter, as well as in every letter that Paul writes, he, he makes clear the order of the moods that in the grammar of the gospel, it is always indicative before imperative. Indicative first. Christ, righteousness before God comes through Christ leading to imperative trust in Christ alone for righteousness. Indicative first, Christ died for you. Imperative, believe in his death. And if we confuse the order, we distort the only gospel that saves. Over and over in the New Testament, you will see this basic gospel grammar. Even if an imperative precedes the indicative in the order of a sentence, in the order of the logic of the grammar of the gospel, uh, God's indicatives are always the foundations, uh, always the foundation for his imperatives. God's grace is always the ground of our, of our obedience. It's never the other way around. From the beginning of the Christian life to the very end, this gospel grammar pattern never changes. God's indicatives are the foundation for all of his imperatives. God's resources are always the source for, for our transformation. We are never expected to live out of our own resources, but instead are always invited to live out of His. Today's passage, the last verse of our selected text, it, it summarizes the entire pericope of verses we will consider this morning, and, 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 and it summarizes the point that Paul has for us this morning. Paul describes who we are in Christ so that we will live out in that identity, and he does so via the basics of this gospel grammar. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, uh, Paul says, uh, Christ set us free. That, those three words are one Greek word, and it's an indicative. He set us free. And, and therefore, if this is the fact about who we are, that we've been set free, if this is the summary of verses 21 to 31, this great indicative now leads to the imperative in verse 1, therefore, stand firm. You, because you have freedom in Christ, indicative, now live out the imperative and stand firm in the freedom that Christ gives us. This is basic 
gospel grammar. In chapter 3, Paul's first major theological argument revolved around our identity as sons of Abraham. We are, whether you're male or a female, we are sons of Abraham. Therefore, be like your father. If Abraham is your father, then become like him. And we understand that kind of argument. If I was a teacher or, and, and a student was misbehaving and I knew that the student's father was a mature Christian, I would say, hey, Tony, hey, Cindy, don't you know who your father is? Be like him. And Paul does the same thing in this book. Be like Abraham, your father. In what way, Paul? Imitate his faith. If you're sons of Abraham, live your, faith by, live your life by faith in the promise of the gospel. And that's how Paul's argument in chapter 3 began. He said in verse 6 and 7, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, verse 7, so know that those who are of faith, those are the sons of Abraham. In today's passage, Paul now reminds us of who our mother is. He says, Sarah is your mother, be like your mother. Be like your father Abraham, yes. And today, Paul says, but, but also be like your mother Sarah. Be like both of your parents. Be like Sarah in what way? She was free, Paul will emphasize in these verses. She wasn't a slave. Be like your mother in that way. The freedom that Paul will stress this morning, it has to do with the freedom of no longer living under the law, no longer trying to earn your way into heaven through the keeping of the law. Paul talks about that in the beginning of chapter 4. For those who have trusted in Christ, uh, believe, uh, believe, uh, don't, don't, don't revert back to the law where you, where you try to keep the law to, to finish your salvation. Don't go back to spiritual slavery. And so today, Paul again wants to highlight the freedom we have in Christ, reminding us of our spiritual mother. And so I have two points for you this morning, phrased in the New Testament's most basic gospel grammar. Point number one, you are the sons of Sarah, found in verses 21 to 31. And then point number two, toward the end, imperative, stand firm in the freedom of your mother. Point number one, indicative, you are the son of Sarah. You are the son of Sarah. You are a child of Sarah. Point number two, imperative, therefore, stand firm in the freedom of your mother. Point number one, indicative, you are the son of Sarah. You are the child of Sarah, verses 21 to 31. If you ever go to your local Barnes & Noble, you will notice that the self-help books section is very extensive. In recent decades, the popularity of that genre of books has skyrocketed. It is filled to capacity. In the past, uh, how-to books were mostly confined to how-to-do-it-yourself enthusiasts. Once in a while, you had Dale Carnegie's famous How to Make Friends and Influence People. It would make the bestsellers list, but those kind of books were quite rare. But now these kind of titles are very, they're too numerous to count, and, and Christians have become no different. We want books and sermons that teach us how to be a Christian. How do I, what's the dummy's guide to being a Christian? We want a a list to follow. We want a a spiritual formula to memorize. We want four laws. We want a sinner's prayer to pray. But sadly, the answers modern Christianity gives us, it, it, it it is filled, it is riddled with content about ourselves, 
about our potential and how we can fulfill our potential. The, the answers focus on our problems and how we can solve them instead of being what God has done for us in Christ already. In these verses, these opening verses, God in Christ, Paul will tell us, has placed you into a brand new spiritual family where you are now more like your spiritual mother Sarah than your own birth mother. And and you need to recognize how much hope this indicative reality can make in your life, especially maybe you, you had a mother who was less than the ideal mother. Paul says now that if your mother was addicted to drugs or, or, or if she was uh, aloof, if she was overbearing, whatever the problem, and how, uh, however much of the same gene pool you share with her, and however the degree of influence she, she exercised over, over your life, and no matter how much you struggle today with those same, same kinds of problems your mother had, in Jesus you are more like Sarah than your birth mother. You are more like Sarah who lived thousands of years ago than you are the mother who gave you birth and raised you in this lifetime. How exactly will Paul will begin in verse 21 explaining that? After making this emotional and personal appeal to the Galatians not to forsake the gospel in verses 12 through 20, the the verses we looked at uh, last Sunday, Paul makes one more final biblical case arguing for the primacy of Christ over against the centrality of the, the, of the law. And he's quite pointed in verse 21. He says, tell me, talk to me. You who want to be under law, do you not listen to the, to the law? He points out the biting irony of what the Galatians are trying to do. They want to live under the law to finish up their salvation, to complete it, but if, if they had actually understood the writings of Moses, they would have realized that the law had always pointed to the sufficiency of Christ alone. Paul said that back in Galatians 3.24. The law has become our tutor to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The Galatians were being misled that they could find life in the law. But the law, Paul says, had, had always promised death. The law had always pointed outside of itself for salvation. In verse 22, Paul continues introducing a portion of the law that he wanted the Galatians to really understand. He writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the servant woman and one by the free woman. I really like the, the ESV translation of verse 22. One by the slave and one by the free woman. And uh, this, my, my version gets a little bit too word-for-word uh, word, uh, ner- nerdy because uh, it isn't doulos. It's a different Greek word, so they, they really uh, uh, accurately describe the Greek word, but you, you really need to translate it slave because it connects to what you saw in the beginning of chapter 4. But anyways, the, the, the historical text he's going to highlight is, uh, is found in Genesis. It's, uh, he's going to highlight these theological uh, principles that are found within Genesis 12 through 22. Paul writes in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the, the slave and one by the free woman. 
That, that's found within the, the chapters 12 through 22 of Genesis. And if you were with me, uh, if you heard my sermon a few months ago, or, or you were in, in the Friday study in Galatians, you would know that uh, in those 10 chapters from Genesis 12 through 22, God is establishing Israel's first national value of faith through the example of Abraham. The first value God's people were called to possess was faith in him. And so God makes a promise of blessing at the beginning of chapter 12 of Genesis, a blessing of salvation for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Abraham believes. He's justified through faith. And then for the next 10 chapters, Moses records how God grows Abraham's faith. God records, Moses records, how Abraham struggles with, with his faith like a roller coaster. He goes up and down, uh, teetering back and forth between faith in himself and in, in his own abilities and in his own strength uh, versus faith in the promises of God. And the, and the climax of these ten chapters is chapter 22, of course, when Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice. And it's in this chapter where Abraham's faith reaches the top of the mountain. The story of the brothers Ishmael and Isaac, the, the story that Paul is going to expound upon theologically this morning, this rivalry between Hagar, Ishmael's mother, and Sarah, Isaac's mother, is, is nestled within those ten chapters focusing on Abraham's faith. Notice how in verse 22, however, Paul doesn't give their names. He doesn't give the names of the sons. And he does that to focus on the the social status of the mothers of the mo the two mothers one was a slave and one was a free woman he doesn't give the names of the two mothers either and he and he focuses on their social status as a slave and a free woman in order to highlight the theology behind these characters and behind the story hagar was a slave sarah was free they had two sons Hagar bore the son Ishmael, Sarah bore the son Isaac. Both of these two sons are Abraham's sons, yes, but they are two kinds of sons. Each of the sons was born to a different kind of woman with a different social status that reflects a particular kind of theology. One was a slave, one was free, and, in, and next, in verse 23, Paul highlights a further distinction between the two sons. Verse 23, but the son by the servant woman had been born according to the flesh, while the son by the free woman through the promise. Paul highlights that each of the sons was born in a different manner. The son Ishmael, born of the slave Hagar, had been born, verse 23, according to the flesh, Paul says. What does that mean, according to the flesh? What does Paul referring to theologically. Go to Genesis 15 with me, if you could. Genesis 15, where this kind of this story really begins. God promised Abraham an heir, a seed in Genesis 12, a seed that will turn into a nation, a seed that will become the offspring of Jesus Christ. But all this hinges, obviously, on Abraham first having a child. But there's a problem, Right? Abraham and Sarah are getting very old. So much so that at the beginning of chapter 15, uh, Abraham, he, he suggests another heir. Verse 2, Lord, what will you give me? 
as I go on being childless. I'm, I'm not getting any younger. My wife is not getting any younger. But there is a, a distant relative, Eleazar of Damascus. He could be the, the heir of my house. Verse 3, since you have given me no seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. And God says no in verses 4 through 6. No, this son, verse 4, will not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body, from Sarah, he shall be your heir. Then he reaffirms the promise in verses 5. Look toward the heavens, number the stars. If you are able to number them, this so shall your seed be. As numerous as the stars of the sky, as numerous as the sands of the, of the seashore. And then Paul reaffirms the promise in the second half of chapter 15. He brings a, a heifer, verse 9, a, a goat, a ram, a pigeon. He splits them in two in verse 10. Uh, he, as the sun is going down, he makes Abraham fall asleep, verse 12. And then God alone uh, walks through the animals, symbolizing Verse 17, he walks through the alone, and uh, he makes a covenant. And, and this walking alone through the animals was saying, I will unconditionally fulfill it. Usually both parties making a covenant with each other would walk down, symbolizing, hey, may this happen to me, what happened to these dead animals if I don't keep the covenant? God alone walks through the, these animals saying, I will unconditionally uh, fulfill this, Abraham, with or without your help. And so by the time we get to Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah, they're not getting any younger. They both think that God is not going to keep his promise. And so they believe, they think, I need to add to the promise. I need to contribute my own efforts. I need to add to faith. Sound familiar? And so Sarah, Sarah has the, the bright idea, hey, you know, legally, culturally speaking, uh, we have this, this Egyptian slave, her, her name is Hagar, Abram, if you sleep with her, technically, the, the child of Hagar would be your son. And Sarah, in her, in her flesh, in her sinful flesh, she even blames God in verse 2. Uh, Behold, uh, Yahweh has shut my womb from bearing children. This is God's fault. Please go into my slave. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And then, verse 2, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Abraham failed to lead and protect his wife. That phrase, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah, is the same phrase in Genesis 3, when Adam listened to Eve and took the forbidden fruit. This is total failure. This is this, is this works-based personal effort to, 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 to complete what God has promised, to help, jo- help God do the job. Hagar was born through the flesh in that way. Verse 16, verse 15, chapter 16, Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son Hagar, uh, that Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Agar, Hagar bore Ishmael to him. And that was how Ishmael was born, according to the flesh. The son of the slave was the result of sinful, fleshly human effort on the part of Abraham and Sarah to supplement God's promise. Their actions were completely void of any kind of faith. They tried to help God as if God couldn't keep his own promise, as if the promise needed to be supplemented by their own efforts. 
And this is the manner in which the first son of a slave was born. Next, Paul says in Galatians 4.23, you don't have to go back there, but let me read that to you. He says, this is how Ishmael was born according to the flesh. That was the manner in which the son of the slave was born. While the son of the free woman, verse 23, Isaac, he was born through the promise. The manner of birth was through the promise by faith. Abraham and Sarah, they were stumbling in their faith, trying to secure the promise of their own through their own strength. And clearly they realize it's a a big mistake. And then in chapter 16 of Genesis, uh, uh, we see uh, 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 Abraham's faith finding its footing again. It's finding its footing again. He... uh, In the beginning of chapter 17, the text says that Abram was 99 years old. Sarah is 90. It's physically impossible for them to have a child of their own. And and nonetheless, God reaffirms the promise to Abraham in verse 16. Abraham responds. He still responds in a fleshly way. And he says to him in, in verse 18 of chapter 17, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, I, I can help you out here. I have this son who can be my heir. Abraham still thinks we need to help God to save us. And uh, God reaffirms, uh, reaffirms once again in verse 19, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for a seed after him. It will be a miracle that God will perform alone. Nothing Abraham and Sarah will contribute to this miraculous birth in their old age. From a a barren womb, all they can do is wait and believe in God. All they can do is trust him. And then, then a year later, Genesis 21 says... Verse 1, Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Sarah celebrates in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. She said in verse 7, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. God did everything. The birth of Isaac was not a natural birth. The cause of Isaac's birth was the result of divine intervention purely and supernaturally. And so go back to Galatians 4. You see the two manners in which these two sons were born. One, according to the flesh, according to our our human effort, our human ingenuity, uh, this lack of faith in God. One, uh, born according to the promise, uh, born simply by waiting for God, trusting in him. And so what is is Paul doing with this story of these two sons, uh, with these with these two mothers born in, the, in, in these two different manners, well, he tells us in verse 24, he says, this is spoken with allegory. This is spoken with allegory. Is Paul interpreting uh, 
the, the story in Genesis allegorically, not in the way we normally understand allegory. Paul's allegory doesn't cons- correspond with what we mean by allegory. Allegory did not emerge in Christian interpretation until about the 2nd or 3rd century. Paul is writing this letter in the 1st century. Allegory as we know it generally de-emphasizes the historical data and emphasizes the sp- spiritual realities on the surface of the text. However, Paul's argument is rooted in historical facts about Sarah and Hagar. Paul's allegory is not the same as modern-day allegory. Paul's allegory is more like an, an, an analogy, where there's items in different categories being compared, in this case, history and theology. And, and notice, Paul is not claiming that he's the one doing the allegory. He, sa- he says what? This is spoken with allegory. He's saying Genesis is talking this way. That Genesis is written in this manner. In other words, Paul observed that Moses wrote Genesis as a history expressing theology. Paul isn't coming up with a deeper meaning here. He is just observing a meaning that's already there. Genesis is not merely recounting historical events. Instead, Genesis records the way God grounded, the way he founded the nation of Israel. As such, then, the narratives of Genesis flesh out the nature of God's covenant. In that context, Abraham's method of obtaining the promise via Hagar in Genesis 16 is contrasting his faith in God's promises mentioned earlier in Genesis 15. Ultimately, God will show that his provision for Sarah is the only way to obtain the promise of an offspring. Isaac is the chosen child. The whole episode in Genesis 16 and 17 that we looked at at, is about trusting in God's provision alone through Sarah versus relying upon your own strength through Hagar. So based upon this, Paul's contrast between faith versus the flesh and the law fits very well with Moses' theology in Genesis. Verse 24, Paul says, continues, this was spoken with allegory, for these women are two covenants. More accurately, these two women represent they, they represent the nature of two covenants. What was the first covenant? Paul is, is using Hagar as a, as, a rep, as a symbol of, verse 24, one from Mount Sinai bearing children into slavery. slavery. She is Hagar. What covenant was that? This was the Mosaic covenant, the law. Mount Sinai is where Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law from God. This covenant, uh, Paul says, was designed to, it was purposed to bear children into slavery. This covenant revealed our sin. This law accentuated our sin. This law cursed us for our sin. This law was characterized by the failure of human effort to gain life. And Abraham and Sarah's interaction with Hagar, who was their slave, is the best illustration of the failure of human effort to bring about the promises of God. 
the law of slavery is just like Hagar the slave. It's the same kind of nature. Ishmael's descendants, the Arabs, for the next thousands of years, will persecute the Jews. The mistake that Abraham and Sarah made was a huge mistake because they would end up being a curse to Israel for, for generations until now, just like the curse of the law. Then in verse 25, Paul says, This Hagar is Mount Sinai. She represents the Mosaic Covenant. This Mount Sinai is in Arabia, verse 25. Why this geographical location? Well, in, in Scripture, geography is, is historical and it's also theological. Real cities and places in Scripture, while historically true, also teach theologic, theological lessons. Mount Sinai being in Arabia, also is teaching, is also making a point theologically. The point is this. If Mount Sinai is in Arabia, then where is Mount Sinai not in? If it's in Arabia, then it's not where? It's not in Israel. What's another name for Israel? The promised land. The law was given in Arabia, not in the land of promise. The land promised to Abraham by God in the Abrahamic covenant, nope, the law wasn't given there. And finally, Paul gets to the point he's trying to reach, the point he's trying to make, verse 25, this Hagar in Mount Sinai in Arabia corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. The same slavery the law brought to God's people, illustrated so well by Abraham's tryst with Hagar, is now the same kind of experience that present-day Jerusalem is, is experiencing with the Judaizers and the Jews Paul is saying something that would have been revolting to the Israel of his day. It would have been, what he's saying here, would have been revolting to the Judaizers in Galatia. He's saying this, Israel, your mother is Hagar. Your mother is the slave Hagar. Israel, your brother is the slave Ishmael the Gentile. Because you are still acting like slaves under the law. You're acting like a slave child born of a slave woman as you live under the, under the law. And as I said, the descendants of Ishmael are the modern-day Arabs, and the Muslims believe that the chosen child of Abraham was Ishmael and not Isaac. They believe that the forefather of Muhammad was Ishmael. And so if Paul was alive today, and if he was speaking to unbelieving modern Israel today, he, he would say this to them. He would say, Israel, on a spiritual level, you're no different than Hamas. You're, you are spiritual brothers with the same spiritual mother, Hagar. You have the same religion. Because both religions are trying to save people through human efforts. The 
This is why the Jews want to kill Paul at the end of Acts, because he talks like this. On the other hand, verse 26, Abraham, Sarah represents the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that promised heaven, that promised Jesus Christ, the Abrahamic covenant that promised a heavenly Jerusalem in the future. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is her mother. Sarah represents the nature of this covenant. This final kingdom of Jesus comes solely by divine intervention, the same way Isaac was given to Sarah. She, she, Sarah represents freedom of faith over against the slavery of the law. And so she is our mother, church. Sarah is your mother. And this is what happened in Paul's day and in our day as well. It's, it's remarkable. What happened was this. The physical descendants of Sarah, the Jews, became the spiritual descendants of Hagar. While the physical descendants of Hagar, Gentiles, like all of us, became the spiritual descendants of, of Sarah. And this is mind-blowing. A total switch. How did Paul figure this out from Genesis? Where did he get this? Where did he make these con connections? From Isaiah, verse 27. Verse 27, Paul says, For it is written. Let me quote Isaiah 54, verse 1 for you. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman. This is Sarah he's referring to. Who does not give birth, who's 90 years old, who's too old to give birth, rejoice. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate one than of the one who has a husband. Then, then Hagar, who had a husband and who had a, who had a child by, by natural means, by fleshly, in a fleshly manner. How Paul read Genesis, how he understood Genesis, is the same way Isaiah read and understood Genesis. Outside of Moses' writings, the only other Old Testament text that references Sarah is Isaiah. And he writes that God intervened, the way that God intervened in the life of Sarah is the foundation for how he will intervene for Israel. Go to, go to Isaiah real quickly. He begins Isaiah speaking of the, the sinfulness of Israel. Isaiah 1, Isaiah chapter 1, 10 through, 10 through 15. Isaiah says, hear the word of Yahweh. He's talking to Israel. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle and the, and the blood of bulls or goats. Do I take pleasure? I don't want that anymore. Verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. They're an abomination to me. I cannot stand your festivals, he says. Verse 14, my soul hates when you worship me. They become a burden to me. I, I, I'm wary of bearing them. Verse 15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, 
even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. You're sinful. And yet, in the same way God intervened in the life of Sarah, is the foundation of how he will intervene for Israel. Go to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, he's speaking to the chosen remnant few who pursue righteousness. Isaiah 51, listen to me. 51.1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. You you came from nowhere. Abraham came from nowhere, like like a rock. Verse 2, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who brought you forth through labor pains. When he was one, but I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. I I kept my promise. This is a foreshadowing of how I will bless Israel. And then go to Isaiah 54, verse 1. And this is the the verse that Paul quotes in Galatians 4, 27. Shout for joy, O barren woman who has not given birth. Break forth into joyful shouting. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For numerous are the sons of the desolate one than the sons of the married woman. Isaiah was written a hundred years before the Babylonian exile, and he's speaking to the, the Israelites who are in exile. Jerusalem is barren. Jerusalem is a ghost town. And, and, he's, and Isaiah is saying to them, Rejoice, rejoice. One day this barren ghost town of Jerusalem will be filled with God's people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. Isaiah 54 is a, is a chapter of praise and worship. The, 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 all of cha- chapter 54, uh, Isaiah is praising God in response to something. What do you think Isaiah 4, 54 is praising God in response to? What do you think? What do you think Isaiah 54 is, is, is responding to with praise and worship? It's probably something in, in Isaiah, right? And it's probably not something that came at, comes after Isaiah, correct? It has to come from something before. And if God is, if Isaiah is praising God in Isaiah 54 for something, it, it probably is where? Isaiah 53. Jesus and the suffering servant. Look at Isaiah 53. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 54 is a response to Isaiah 53. And that's the verse that Paul is quoting. And so what is Isaiah saying in Isaiah 54, 1? that the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is the result of Jesus' death. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise Isaiah describes comes by the same means as the immediate fulfillment of Sarah giving birth to Isaac. God's work alone. God's work alone. God only works through faith 
just as he has shown in the life of Sarah. Isaiah's quote in verse 27 is praising the result of the work of Christ in Isaiah 53, but Isaiah adds one more detail. Isaiah says in Isaiah 54.1, the faith that God works through is faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have that faith, your mother is Sarah. If you have that faith in Christ, you can look forward to the final day verse 27 describes. Go back to Galatians. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. After arguing from Genesis about our spiritual pedigree from verses 21 through 27, Paul now spells out the consequences of his argument in the following verses. He says in verse 28, And you, brothers, in accordance with Isaac, are children of promise. You were born in the same manner of Isaac. You were born in accordance with Isaac. You received salvation in the same way that Isaac was born, through divine intervention. You didn't receive salvation by submitting to the law. You didn't receive salvation because you did something good by your own plans, by your own works. Your salvation is the result of supernatural intervention from God in the same way Isaac was born. Who are you? What gospel indicative do you need to know? You are sons of Sarah. Sarah is your mother. And verse, 20, verse 28 says, You're children of promise. Your salvation is the result of a promise God made thousands of years ago. You didn't earn it. You didn't contribute to it. You didn't work for it. If you did, if you say you did, if you feel like that you did, you're saying that you're a son of Hagar. You're saying that you're a child of a slave woman. But God didn't bring a, God didn't choose Ishmael. The promise didn't go through Ishmael. There's another way that the Galatians are like Isaac, verse 29. At the time he was born according to the flesh, was persecuting him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. There's another way that the Galatians are like Isaac. When Isaac was born, Genesis 21 tells us that he was three and he was weaned and Abraham had a party for the, his weaning and Ishmael is about 17 years old at this celebration and it was on this occasion where Sarah saw something that really bothered her. Genesis 21.9 says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing in jest. The Hebrew for the word laughing is intensive. We're not sure what was behind the laughter, but Sarah apparently saw bad intentions behind the laugh toward her boy Isaac. She sensed the danger uh, of, of having this child of a slave uh, in the same household of, with the child of a, of a promise, and in the very next in Genesis 21, she says what Paul quotes in verse 30 here in Galatians 4. What does the scripture say? And these are the words of Sarah to her husband Abraham. 
cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. And, and, and Paul, he compares this ill will that Ishmael had toward Isaac, he compares it to what the Galatians are experiencing from the false teachers in Galatia. And so he says in verse 30, in the same way that Sarah cast out this son of slavery, in the same way you cast out this theology of slavery. Same way she got rid of the slave son and the slave woman, you cast out the theology that will enslave you to the law. Because they don't go together. Just like Sarah thought, my son Isaac and this son Hagar, they cannot live in the same house. Paul is saying this theology where you think you can earn your salvation through the law, it cannot coexist in the same heart who believes in salvation by grace. Cast it out. Get rid of it. Your father, verse 31, is the one who was justified, justified by faith. In verse 31, Paul says, your mother Sarah was the woman who lived in the freedom of the promise Christ. This is gospel grammar. Verses 21 to 31 is the indicative of your life. These are the facts with a story from Genesis. And this is what's amazing about the Apostle Paul. The Old Testament was just as ancient to Paul as the New Testament is to us. The Old Testament to Paul was just as ancient as the New Testament is to us. And yet, Paul, he can see the gospel in Genesis in this ancient text, and he's able to apply it in this current situation. And we need to do the same with the gospel of the New Testament and apply it in our lives. It's just as relevant us as, as this ancient text was to Paul. He says, these are the facts. You have freedom in Christ. Be like your mother. Be like your mother. Point number one, indicative, you are the son of a free woman. And now finally, point number two, per- imperative, stand firm in the freedom of your mother. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is a short point. When you, What if you're trying to be free in Christ and you're not changing at all? Let's say you're not growing. You know, you you say that I'm free from the law, I'm free from sin, Pastor, but I I still struggle with the same sins. One possibility is that you're not a believer. Sometimes when men struggle with sexual sins, it could be a sign you're not truly saved. If you're an unbeliever, you will never be free from your slavery until you turn to Christ by faith. You will never be free from your sins until you ask Him to free you from your sin by His grace. Until you give Him control over your life. But, but things aren't that simple for us Christians either, correct? 
because we can be tempted to go back under the law. We can be tempted to return to the slavery from which we were freed. And, and Paul says, remember, freedom from sin can never come from the law. It can never come from education and moral principles. It can restrain it to a certain degree. Laws can do that. But it can never cure the desires of your heart. The only cure for sin is your death with Christ. And in that death with Christ, a new person is born, freedom is given, and you receive a spiritual mother, Sarah. Paul says in verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. In Jesus, you are free from thinking that you could ever be justified through the law. You are free from the bent of your old life where you tried to save yourself, but deep down you knew that you were guilty, and because of that you were full of anger because of this standard you thought was too unfair, it was too, un- it was too high, it was, it was too impossible to keep. You were under the law, but you, you were also a slave to your sin, but then you believed in the gospel, the indicative, of, the indicative of the gospel came to you. Christ freed you from the curse of the law, from the condemnation of the law. You have this new freedom by faith. You have this freedom to please the Lord. You have the, the freedom to obey all of his commandments, knowing that you will never obey them perfectly, while also confident that your standing before God does not in any way depending, depend on your obedience. And this is why we are free to love Christ in all the highs and the lows of our sanctification. It's the indicative. The indicative that we're called to live out. Now that we know that, Paul says, stand firm in that freedom. The, the word stand firm, it's, it's, a, it's a military term for soldiers standing in line, unmoved, holding the line, Don't go back to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back thinking the law could give you any type of redemption, any kind of uh, salvation. Don't go there. And the how, how do I do that? How do I be a Christian like that? How do I do that? You're a child of Sarah. Your mother is Sarah. That's how. Be like her. The how is knowing who you are. Your father is Abraham, justified by faith. Your mother is Sarah, free from the law. Be like your parents. See your mom and dad? Be like them. Same spiritual gene pool. Same Holy Spirit of influence. You can do it. You can do it if you're in Christ. Indicative, imperative. Is that the gospel grammar of your life? Does your sanctification follow that order? See, if it's reversed, you'll never grow. Imperative to the indicative, that leads to hell. Obey in order to be saved? No. Christ died for you. You're in Christ. Now live it out. What language do you speak? Paul says, speak the language of the indicative and the imperative of the gospel. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for this portrait of who we are in Christ. Thank you for reminding us of who our mother is, who our father is. And as much as we love our parents and as much as we want to live up to the, their expectations, Paul says there's a greater reality to who we are. We have a, a, a spiritual pedigree that cannot be bought with silver or gold, a spiritual reality that we cannot earn, that, we, that there is no plan, no mach, machination, no scheme that we could ever bring about. Father, all we can do is believe. Believe the promise you gave us. So we ask that you would help us know who we are in Christ, know our spiritual parents, then we would just live out who we are for your glory in Jesus' name.